Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest, and sometimes you just get confirmation that you should have got a guest on earlier. So when we post the National B-Team roster, this assistant coach got more shout-outs and more congratulations than any of the players, which to me is just giving the listeners what they want. It's about time we got this guy on the show. So today's guest was CIS Rookie of the Year, and he was also named Team Captain when he played at the University of Manitoba. He's represented Team Canada on the indoor, and like I said, he's now coaching with our B-Team. He's played professionally three times in the Netherlands League. He's played in the Czech and the Finnish league and as a Dutch athlete he's won pretty well every cup there is with the Northern Dutch Cup uh, he's kind of competed in Champions League CEV Cup he's won a Dutch Cup I believe our, our records are a little shady but let's hear it from him welcome to the show Chris Voth Chris thanks for doing this man hey thanks so much for having me this is awesome so like I said you got some pretty big shout outs which means you've been around the volleyball community and you're just a, a great guy and even I got to see you at Canada Games, a national team athlete and a pro volleyball player was volunteering on the beach side. And I'm sure you went over to the inside after, which uh, indoor side after, excuse me. But uh, I think it's just great that shows how involved you are in the community that uh, I started to question, like, do all volunteers have to have your background to be around here? Because it was just kind of cool to see somebody of your caliber volunteering at an event like that. Yeah, thanks so much. That was, it was such a fun event. And I was just glad that I could be there. Um, we hosted the Norseca Championship a few years later. And I was honored to be a volunteer for that as well. So just really fun to uh, work with great people and get to be a part of, you know, such awesome events. So to set the scene for your career, just let me know how you got into volleyball. Obviously, your sister was a top level player and represented the national team as well. But one thing that I thought was interesting, just doing some research on you for the show, is that uh, Bison's has a club when you were growing up that you almost felt like affiliated. So uh, I believe I saw a quote in one of the articles that you felt like you were Bison since you were like 12 years old and onward. So I was wondering just what was your sport background growing up? And then when did you choose volleyball to be like your full time passion? Yeah, that's that's funny you bring that up. It's it's um, interesting what I've forgotten about my own life. Uh, so growing up, I played a lot of volleyball and badminton. Both my parents were volleyball players, and now they're both in the Hall of Fame uh, in Manitoba. And so they, we know, would take me to their practices, and that's kind of where I fell in love with the sport. Started learning the skills from their players, throwing me a ball and seeing how I would hit it back with them, I guess. And then over the years, I just started becoming more and more involved in their drills to the point where, you know, I would be a player on the team in the drills. Like you said, my sister played growing up. so She was always a great role, role model for me. Um, she was incredibly successful. She, I think, still has records in the CIS uh, for hitting percentage. Um, and that was with one year playing opposite too, which is pretty impressive. So she played four as a middle and one as an opposite. Um, so really cool. Um, she's always a hard worker and someone that I looked up to on court, but also we took classes together. So that was a kind of 
funny interaction where we would compete against each other in class. And yeah, and so because Winnipeg hosted or was the home of, I should say, Team Canada Volleyball or Indoor Volleyball, I would always go to all those events and it was so cool to just see the power and the speed of the of the game. And I would also go to as many Bison and Westman games as I could. It was actually funny when I was getting recruited uh, to some universities, the coaches remembered me as being one of the loudest fans for the Bisons a couple of years ago. So I was always a, a proud Bison. I played for the Bison Volleyball Club growing up from since I was 12, I guess, till 18U. And so, yeah, being a bison, I guess, was always part of my identity. And with you being similar age to Dane, and then obviously, like, Taylor Pischke's a heck of a volleyball player, did you know Garth growing up? Was he around the club a lot? Or was it mostly through the recruiting process and when you decided to be a bison that you got to meet, you know, Garth and kind of the legend coach that he be, that he is and has earned that reputation? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough. I played on the same age as Dane. And so we played club growing up. Every year together, uh, we played provincial team together. Uh, we even went to the full-time center together. We played beach together during the summer. So we were, we were pretty close. And so Garth was my coach over the years for, I guess, about 11 years in total. Um, so we got to know each other quite well. And with that club team, like obviously you guys had a lot of success was it ever talked about at the post-secondary level what you guys were going to do? Because like you said, you and Dane were the same age, but I believe like a core of you entered the Bisons at a time. Was that just a natural step or were you honestly considering some other universities or possibly colleges to go post-secondary with? Uh, so our, our club was really successful, actually. I think throughout my entire club career, we only lost three matches total to teams our own age. Um, so we had quite the run. Uh, most of those at nationals, unfortunately. So we we didn't win nationals every year, um, but it was, it was a really strong team. And a lot of us went to the same high school together and we we're really good friends. And so, like you said, we just kind of decided to go to U of M altogether. And that was really our, our rookie class. We had just as many rookies as veterans that first year, um, which didn't really bode well for our record, but um, it definitely made for you know, a, a super memorable career at U of M. And uh, in the later years, we were obviously a lot more successful than in those, those first two years. Now, I'm trying to remember the timing of, of your club years, and I'm trying to think of, of one of those games you would have lost. Would that be uh, in Ottawa in your 18 new year? Did you lose to that Pac-Man team? I think you guys maybe beat like Eric Matson and his really good blues teams. But then did you come across like Dan Deering and Charles Pac-Man? I'm trying to line up the timing here. Yeah, so we actually played that Pac-Man team in round robin and beat them. And then, uh, like you said, we played that Toronto team in the semis. And uh, the quarters was actually a, a pretty big game as well. We played against our our West rival, the Elite West Bound. We played against them uh, in the quarters, and we had played them a lot over the years in Western, so it was always a big rivalry. Uh, playing that Toronto team in the semis was also a really close game. And then we finished off playing that Pac-Man team. So we lost 15-13 in that third set. Nice, nice. And you mentioned when you entered uh, U of M, obviously like a young core. So as successful as you were at the high school and club level, was there just going to be another step or a big jump to what the CIS level was at that time? I think there definitely was a big jump, but we were a little unaware of what that jump would look like (laughs) because... We did have so much success, and I think it was a bit of arrogance or and a bit of ignorance, um, just thinking, oh, well, now we'll just kind of continue that somewhere else. 
So I was fortunate enough there was a, a spot in the roster, and that's part of the reason why I chose U of M is because uh, I was able to start every game that, that year. And um, so it was a really good opportunity to play at a really high level, but obviously it really did exploit a lot of my own weaknesses, which, yeah, was, was a great experience, I think. And I was able to play with some, some pretty awesome guys. And for you to take down like that rookie of the year award, obviously like that's really special. So do you feel like you progressed as the season went on? Like how, if, if you had to timeline it, how long until you felt really comfortable playing at the Canada West level? I would say there was some, it was pretty sinusoidal. <laughs> I, you know, I started uh, pretty confident and then um, really had a, a tougher time kind of in that middle chunk. And then at the end started feeling a little bit better. Um, in my fifth year, actually, I just come off kind of a major knee surgery. And so it wasn't my best season. Um, so it was probably my fourth year. That was our best year where we ended up getting a bronze at nationals. But the, my second year was pretty poor, which I attribute most of that to my own mental struggle. Um, that was a time when I was really struggling with my sexuality and it really took a toll on me. And then, um, yeah, our fourth year was definitely our best year. We had a, a really good group. We were still hungry and still fighting. And then our fifth year, we had essentially our entire starting lineup were fifth years. Um, but we could only, you know, get that that group together for the big games and lost some pretty bad ones throughout the season. So uh, made for a, a tough playoff run where we lost to UBC in the best of three. I think we lost both games in five maybe but it was a pretty emotional period yeah for sure and obviously we're going to touch on that a little bit later but let's go for it now because i'm interested to hear how it affected your second year but uh obviously you deserve a lot of credit and you are credited with uh, being canada's first active openly gay national team athlete and i i'm curious at the university level what that was like and the reason i bring that up is at at ontario volleyball i got to work with brian fotley and, and queens did a great article on him about when he left the team and i thought one thing that was super interesting about his own experience in coming out is he he mentioned just being in the team room, just like the the use of language and the way guys describe things. And, and believe me, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but uh, you and I aren't too separate in age. And I believe like even using the term gay to describe something that's like stupid or silly, like obviously that stuff's happening in the team room. So I'm curious, h- how did that affect you and just your identity and your spot on the team where like people around you who you care about and obviously your team to them are using, uh, I guess, language like that or there's things going on at a team level that they might not know affects you, but obviously had a big impact, right? Right. Yeah. There's a lot of language that happens, uh, you know, on court and in the locker room. Um, but it's not only the language. I would say it's also the behavior where people are afraid of being labeled gay. And so they kind of perpetuate like a hyper masculine uh, behavior. And so I would also because that's part of the culture, it's I'm not saying it's good, but that's when people say gay, they it gets perceived as gay, but they, in my mind, don't really mean for it to mean homosexual. They just, that's the word that has been attributed to whatever they're talking about, um, which I think we should change. But it would be more of me kind of probing my team and my friends about like, oh, well, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And, and you know, trying to get more direct answers on their perceptions of, of gay people. Um, and that's where you know, that kind of need to 
be hyper-masculine and, and, you know, verging on homophobic where that kind of impacted me a little bit. And I really felt isolated based on some of my perceptions on how my teammates and my friends would, would take my coming out. But then a few years later, I did eventually start coming out to a few people and it went, went quite well. So uh, I was fortunate to be surrounded on the team with my best friends and um, I was struggling with it myself. And uh, so, you know, there was a bit of a learning period for everyone, but it was, I was definitely fortunate to be surrounded with such great people at that time. Yeah, definitely. And and hearing about your background of having two athletic parents, a, a sibling who's very athletic, and then going through this system of, I, I think sport gets built up that the masculinity and this alpha mindset. So looking back, uh, obviously, it's hindsight or revisionist history at this time. But what can a coach or a leader on the team really do to make sure that everybody's included? Like you mentioned, like, language isn't all of it, there's some behavior that comes with it. Like, looking back, what would have helped a uh, young Chris Voth in that situation if somebody on the team would have stepped up and did certain things? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think that, like, even though I kind of said that the language didn't matter so much, I would say that's probably the number one thing uh, that could and should change. Um, because with that, then people's actions and behaviors would also be impacted. So if if there was um, a captain, let's say, who would call. Uh, other players out for racist or sexist or homophobic comments, then I think that would remind people to be respectful and um, would actually change their behavior as well. So uh, I do think language plays a, a really big role with people's perception of the environment and, um, you know, just being cognizant of that, you know, at the high performance level, I think it is, a little bit different of a culture compared to like an educational setting where it's not so much about an individual athlete feeling like they can, you know, participate in a safe space. Uh, and I definitely felt that growing up playing on the national team. Um, the national team was only supportive for me in my journey. And so I'm so honored to now be a part of it and, and hoping to, you know, create a better environment for the athletes that are competing now. But since coming back, like I saw so much growth and and such a difference in the culture, even with the guys who I played with, you know, maybe it was myself who was more comfortable with myself. So I was able to see everything in a, in a rosier lens, but yeah, it's definitely uh, pretty inspiring the, you know, what I've noticed so far. Yeah, that, that's great to hear. And I'm, I'm just curious, your thoughts uh, in the NFL, Carl uh, Nassib, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. He, he recently came out and I think he's getting credit as the first NFL player who's actually on a on a roster because I think uh, Michael Sam did it, but I don't think he actually made the squad coming out. So in your opinion, like the volleyball community, it sounds like when you made your decision was pretty supportive and you mentioned the national team was supportive. Why do you think it's taken so long in, in like the big four? Because I think Brian Burke's done a good job with uh, the You Can Play organization. And he's mentioned there's got to be some NHL players who are, but they're not open about it. And I'm wondering from your experience and your perspective, why is it taking that long in like the big four to, to make this adjustment? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, one of them is because I think that the athletes spend their entire lives and dedicate their entire lives to getting to this point um, where they can play on the biggest stage in the world. And so not only do they not want to jeopardize it, 
by potentially doing something that would um, get the fans against them or their team or their teammates. Uh, but also it could maybe serve as a distraction, you know, where there's so much media attention and so many you know, distractions that, that it could impact your career as well. And so I think that was what, really cool. What Carl did is he had a video and a statement afterwards attached to that video, um, basically saying that, you know, this is what I've told the world now, um, but I'm not taking any media requests uh, I just want to, you know, do my own thing. I'm making this amazing contribution to the Trevor project, but yeah, that's, uh, that's it for now, you know? And I think that's, that's a really good precedent to set so that those people don't get overwhelmed with attention and, you know, for better or for worse, I think that's, that's awesome. So I'd say that's probably the the major factors with that. For sure. For sure. And then just looking at your pro career, was this ever something you had to consider, whether it was uh, a certain club or a certain coach or even a certain culture that you're going to play in? Like, obviously, you mentioned our national team was supportive. But when you're looking at getting a professional deal and, and playing overseas, w- was this something that you actually had to take some time and consider? Or were you confident and, and comfortable just to make a volleyball decision? Uh, so I would say the first thing that I would do is when getting uh, an offer or a proposal or anything like that is I'd look at the country and see how accepting the country is. Um, I had a lot of offers in countries that I just couldn't go to or couldn't play in um, because homosexuality could be punishable by death, for example. So that just wouldn't work. Uh, In terms of the team, I guess it it wasn't so much of what the team culture or the players would, you know, what I think they would do or I would look into them so much. It It would just be the country and then you know, once arriving in that country and getting to know the team, uh, then that was just a, a whole nother process, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what's unique about volleyball is obviously you're, you're constantly going for one year contracts to different countries and working with different people that it's, uh, it, I have a sense that you never really know what you're signing up for. Like we had Dustin Snyder on the show and he mentioned he got signed to a deal and the coach didn't even play a system that played to his strengths as a setter. Right. So I think as a volleyball player, there's always things to consider that maybe that's why the one year deal is attractive that if you don't like your experience, you can leave after that. Right. Yeah, definitely. I, I did have an opportunity to sign multi-year contracts, but I just really didn't like that commitment. And not only for volleyball, but also for my own, you know, like sexuality on, on what impact that would have with that team or in that country. And so I never wanted to be locked into something like that. Uh, Cause I don't think there is, would be anything worse than getting through a season and coming back to Canada and then thinking, okay, well in three months I have to head back there and do that all over again. You know, you think you're at the finish line, but you're only at the halfway point. So I, I just never could commit to that. Uh, but with that being said, I, I think a lot of the teams too were cognizant of my sexuality and um, maybe not 100% sure on how it would go. And so depending on the country, then I wouldn't get two-year offers. And then, then I did, of course, have the, the one case where the team actually withdrew my contract uh, because of my sexuality and citing that as their reason. And so, yeah, there's a lot of different factors that go into it, I guess. Yeah. Are you comfortable going down that route? Like, did you just think that that was a red flag and that was an opportunity for you to get away from that situation? Or did you feel a situation with your agent to maybe 
pursue like a legal battle. Like obviously the, the concept of fighting to go back to that environment seems a little foreign to me, but I'm wondering how did you, when you first heard that, like what, what, what went through your head? Uh, yeah, it was at first I was actually driving back, uh, from Gatineau to Winnipeg. And so I, I saw the message from my agent and it didn't really dawn on me what, what was happening. But then I thought what was most impactful about that experience was the the talk I had with Steve Welsh, who was my agent at the time, was that it wasn't really a single occurrence. It was really happening with a lot of teams uh, who would just go radio silent with me, or I guess with Steve when discussing me, uh, probably when they discovered that I was gay or openly gay and, you know, lost a lot of opportunity because of that. So this one team withdrew their, their contract that I, you know, was pretty excited for, um, citing that as their reason, but they weren't just, they weren't the only ones. And so that's why I didn't want to make it, um, a me versus them and reveal the country or the team because it wasn't, I didn't want it to be me getting back at them. I wanted it really to be about the issue that I was having and it you know, isn't really fair to just pin all the hate that people would have on one team when, you know, they weren't the only ones. There were probably dozens more and um, they just didn't explicitly say that as, as their reason. So, yeah, I just saw it as an opportunity to, to shed some light on the issues. And when I first came out, I think a lot of the people, at least in the comments section, were, were curious on why it was news. Why do you have to come out? And I think when you look at it, that's, I agree. I don't think you should have to come out. And I think that that would be maybe the the gold standard of how accepting a culture is, is if you have to come out or not. And even Carl talked about that in his, in his coming out, but uh, we're not at a place yet where, you know, you can do that. So you do need to come out to inspire other people to play the sport that they didn't think was possible. Uh, or to come out themselves. And so by by shining some light on this, you know, uh, experience that I went through, then I think it really showed those people who were questioning why I had to come out, why I had to come out. Because it's it's not an accepting realm, especially when you're working with, you know, in European sport, and it's not not the same as North American sport. Um, it's already a pretty shady business. And then you add that extra element in there, then it gets even worse. So I think that really opened people's eyes to the issues that, that are in sport. And, uh, that's why I thought it was necessary to, uh, you know, bring that to light. Yeah, for sure. And I completely agree with you. And as soon as you mentioned that, like, why does it have to be news? My mind went to, uh, when I was with Team Ontario Indoor one year, uh, Becky Hammond was named uh, an assistant coach for San Antonio. And it was kind of a big deal to have a female on a coaching staff of a men's sport. And and one of the coaches I was working with mentioned, like, why, why is this a big deal? And I was like, well, hopefully in a few years, it's not a big deal. But I think there has to be a little bit of normalization or celebrating this coming through, right? Like, I, I don't think it is normal. And, and hopefully, with people like you taking a stance, it, and it, it'll normalize itself. But uh, do you ever get a sense like that? that it's less newsworthy or is it still as fresh as when you did chose to, to come out? Like, is it something that still comes up when you're negotiating contracts? Uh, so I haven't had any, any experience with um, negotiating contracts as a coach, but uh, I do think it is still, 
an issue. Like I've, I worked last year with my team in the Netherlands and I'm hope, hopefully going back there this year. But I definitely see that as a barrier because as a player, you know, you're part of your piece of the puzzle, but you know, that, that isn't so important. But then when you're a coach, now you're leading the charge. And so I think a lot of people uh, would be concerned about um, even players perceptions on what that would mean for playing for a gay coach. Um, especially when you consider different cultures in different countries throughout Europe, you know, you can see right now they have LGBT free zones. So it's just, you aren't allowed to have what they call gay propaganda, I believe. And you see that in kind of the central Eastern European countries or some of them. And so there's, you know, it's, it's still difficult. Uh, and I think we do need to celebrate the, you know, the people who are trying to uh, trailblaze. And so um, we're not at the point yet where we can, you know, just blow it off as nothing. I think it's important to celebrate it and, and, you know, that way it'll inspire other people to follow their dreams and, and not have these restraints put on them. For sure. For sure. And just to, to tie up that last story you told, I'm curious because you had committed to this club and they terminated the offer, did that cost you a year of playing or were you able to find a contractor? Do you have to take some time off because it happened? Like you said, you're, you're leaving the full-time training center and going home to, to Winnipeg to hopefully then go overseas again. Right. So were you able to find another club that season had happened? Uh, so I did spend a few more uh, months at the full-time center from August to about November. And so that was actually a really cool experience. I really, it was really cool to like solidify all the knowledge and um, culture that Vince Pichette was was instilling in the players at the time at the Full Time Center. That was with Schwan Vernon and Arthur Schwartz. Uh, you know, so it was, a, it was a pretty fun group. But yeah, so I was there for a couple months, and then uh, that's when I went to Finland after that. Nice, nice. So just to go back to your your playing days, I'm curious. The national team was in Winnipeg, you mentioned, and then they moved to Gatineau, but you still had like the the memory as a youth athlete coming up and seeing what national team volleyball could be. So with you going through a, a very competitive Canada West program and meddling at U Sports CIS, uh, was the national team always going to be the next step? Or did you feel like when you went to that first tryout that uh, you, you had something to prove and you really had to earn it? Uh, yeah, it was always my dream to play with the Maple Leaf. So it was, it was just always something that I aspired to, to do. And, um, I really looked up to the national team athletes. I just saw them as being just the greatest role models and heroes, uh, in the sport. And so I just wanted to, to go and be a part of that culture and, um, hopefully inspire other people to play the sport and, and have an impact on other people the same way that those athletes had on me. And so I, I think the first tryout I ever had, it was for the youth team. Um, I got stuck in an airport coming back from Western Elites in Sherwood Park in Alberta. And so I was running on only a couple hours of sleep, um, but was fortunate enough to make that team. And we trained in Brandon that year. And then Played in, in Winnipeg with the junior team and then came to Gatineau. I uh, was actually cut the first time I tried out in Gatineau. That was kind of a shocking experience, not the getting cut part, but just it was the first time that I was trying out with uh, people who were much older than me. So usually growing up, I was always one year younger because 
the age group would move up. So it was the the Graham Vigrass, the Rudy Verhoof, uh, Jay Blankenau, like those those guys. It was their age group, and uh, so in '89, and I'm a '90, and so I always was playing one year younger than everyone. Uh, but that first B team tryout, they had both the A and the B team uh, tryout at the same time. So I was playing with a a much you know better group and more experienced group, and um, was definitely <laughs> out of my league. So uh, that was a very humbling experience, and I I learned at that point all the things I had to work on. And that was also after a bad year of university. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, it was fun to kind of work on those weaknesses over the years and and then ended up, you know, making the team all the years after that. So I was very fortunate um, to be able to do that. And was there anybody from the A-team that you kind of looked up to that the first time you're at a trial with them or you're in a drill with them, it's kind of like a, I don't want to say starstruck, like I don't want to over-dramatize it, but maybe the first time like Fred Winters and you are in a drill together, is that like a special moment for you because you were such a fan of volleyball growing up and you you had this connection to the national team and you knew who the guys were? Or honestly, did you feel so confident in your skills that you were just a, a competitor at that level and you were trying to take his spot really? Uh, so it depends if I'm wearing my mask or not for the answer of that question. <laughs> uh, the truth is, is I was very starstruck. I think that's a great word, uh, because I grew up idolizing, idolizing these people. I would, you know, be the sweat wiper. I was the ball boy. I was, um, getting them water. You know, I was always volunteering at these events. And so, uh, I knew them quite well and, you know, they didn't know me. They just kind of saw me as that kid who was always around, you know, doing things during the game. Uh, but I definitely uh, remember, you know, stepping on the court for the first time and, you know, being, you know, a teammate or a, or an opponent against these guys and it being kind of strange. Probably Dallas Sunius is one of the guys who I looked up to a lot uh, because he was so talented, but he was also so colorful. He was um, okay just being himself. And uh, I think that it's really easy when you get into these environments to just kind of go with the crowd and, you know, keep your head, you know, low so that you don't stand out too much. But he was just a guy who was just totally authentic and just always himself. Um, I remember one one year it was during World League in Winnipeg. I was a ball boy. I was passing the ball to the players to serve. And uh, so Sunius was in position two. He got a kill and he was coming to serve. And so I passed him the ball. And uh, my sister played for the women's national team at the time. And so he knew who I was. And so he goes, Vaught, you, you just got to swing high every time, man. That's how you score. Just keep it high and they won't be able to touch you. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, Dallas, can you focus? Like you're, you're in a world league game, man. Like I need you to focus here. And I didn't say that, but in my head, I'm like, yep. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Like I'll do whatever you say. No problem. Just serve and score. And so I pass him the ball and then he gets an ace and he looks back at me and points. He goes, told you every time. And I'm like, what? What's going on? And then the other team called the timeout, and you know, he was. But he was just talking with this random ball kid during a game. I think not realizing the impact that he was having, uh, not just teaching me the sport and trying to improve my level, but also that it's okay to be yourself and it's okay to be authentic and um, to do your own thing your own way. And uh, so that was something that I like to share with him that story every once in a while. Um, because we're pretty good friends now. Uh, but that was a, a pretty cool moment between myself and with Dallas. 
Yeah, that, that's so cool. And that was going to be my next question if you if you ever did tell him that story. So it's so cool to hear him, you know, you know be receptive to that and just the, the, the little things that I think vets can do. So I, I'm curious with your upbringing through sport, was there anything you like to do? Because obviously you were a captain at U of M and you've played pro and, and now you're into coaching. Like, is there anything you like to do or to instill in the culture of a team that uh, maybe some of the older guys can reach out to the younger guys and, and be that role model or, or give them just like the not permission, but just the, the culture of our team is everybody's going to have like the, the green light to be themselves. And if you're goofy and outgoing, you can do that. If you're shy and quiet, you can be that like, just, just this culture that everyone's going to be themselves and we're all going to come together for the greater good. Yeah. I think, I think that's such a great message. One of the things I, I do like to tell people are that I think we all try and shape ourselves, uh, to be like someone that we would think is, you know, one of the best players in the country and playing for Canada. But I, I think that you need to be able to separate yourself, not necessarily from the group, but to, to be authentic and to be yourself in order to, to get to that next level. Because when it comes down to playing national team or playing professionally, the teams are looking for what can you do for the team? You know, so if you are have shaped yourself to do something or everything the way that everyone else is doing it, then you're not really gonna gonna separate yourself. Right. So you need to kind of have that special spark. And how do you get that? You get that by by being yourself, by doing something maybe a little different. Right. And so that's something that when I'm coaching, I I like to allow people that autonomy to, you know, um be individual. Uh, and then bring them together as a collective to make a, a stronger team. Um, so I, I think that's an important part. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm just going off on tangent, so I, I don't even remember <laughs> what the question or what the statement was. But um, yeah, that's something that I think is is important when you're when you're trying to go pro or you're trying to make a, a team at all. For sure. So just to kind of recap your career quickly, like playing for a really good club team, playing for good university, you you make Team Canada. Uh, I am curious, just by learning, by doing the show even, uh, getting an agent is kind of a unique experience and getting pro contracts in our sport is very unique too. So how did you decide on who was going to be your first agent? And then do you remember back, how do you weigh your your first offer? Because sometimes, like, obviously, you're, maybe you know a little bit about this country or this country, or maybe another guy from the national team has played for this club. So you might maybe, like, get some intel from them. But I, I find it's got to be this really unique experience where you're weighing these contracts about two clubs that really you don't know much about. Because here in Canada, we, we don't really follow the standings or we don't see games of the club level play, right? So with you coming through FTC and Team Canada, was anyone a big help with you? Or did you just get an agent and really rely? on their expertise uh so i, I kind of grew up throughout my my university and um afterwards talking a lot with tj sanders and so he was one who was always able to navigate on these foreign websites in foreign languages and they looked like they would just you know download all the malware onto your computer uh, but he was able to find these pro volleyball games before it was accessible um, so I really looked to him for a lot of the, you know, the knowledge on, on the professional realm. When we went overseas with the full-time center, uh, we played against some pro teams. And so that was the first time I had ever played against a pro team was with the national team. And so that was kind of cool. But when you're first starting out, 
Uh, I think the biggest thing is to reach out to the athletes uh, either that you know or that have played for a team before. I think a lot of people kind of get into the mindset that they just need to get an agent right away and that agent will find them something. But realistically, it's probably not an agent that's going to find something. It's going to be you networking with other Canadians or people that you know overseas uh, and then finding something, you know, that way. Uh, agents can really help you, you know, maybe make a decision or guide you. But I also think that your career should be your choice. And so you need to weigh out what you find important and uh, fight for the things in your contract that you want, as opposed to asking too many people for their opinion. Uh, some people, when they go overseas, they just want to experience playing overseas and they want to travel and they want to have fun. You know, that's totally okay. Um, so then you don't need to to try and get on the best team or make the most money. Uh, maybe then it's the geographical location or, you know, the amount of practice days in a week. Um, there'll be different factors, right? So, uh, and then with that, every every athlete's different. So if you're looking to improve, maybe it's more important to get playing time than it is to get on a good team and uh, not get as much playing time, you know, or um, maybe you want to try and get on a good team as a third left side and then work your way into a starting lineup. So there's a lot of factors that go into it. And I think that you can definitely ask people for help for making decisions. But I really think that uh, you need to prioritize what you want and really reflect on what your goals are and, and how you get there. With that being said, I don't know anyone who's gone overseas who wouldn't respond to a message and offer advice to another Canadian or someone from their university. So if you do need that advice or are looking for something, then for sure, reach out to anyone you know and guaranteed they're going to help because that's how they got there. You know, uh, for myself, it was TJ who, who talked to the, his coach in the Netherlands about me and got me onto the team in the Netherlands. Um, and then the same thing happened when I went to Finland. I talked to Andre Brown and he got me on his team. And, you know, so then I just do that for the next person. And then it's just kind of the circle of life where we just kind of help each other out and everyone just finds their way onto a team. Um, I think it would be rare of, as a gay player, at least, to have multiple offers that you have to decide between. I know there's been seasons where both TJ Sanders and Jay Blankenau did not have a contract. And so those are our top setters in the country and they didn't have a contract. So if you can get a contract, then that's a, a really good thing. You should look at that very seriously uh, because they don't happen as often as people think. And then if you do have multiple offers, that's fantastic. Um, I think that that's a, a good area now where you can kind of make that decision yourself and see um you know, like I said, prioritize what, what you deem to be important. Yeah, for sure. And one of the many things that I do enjoy about sport is what's true today isn't going to be true tomorrow. And you can always like work yourself into a better player. But kind of the dark side of that would be 
if I'm signed to this club and I'm going to be the second left side, but then all of a sudden they sign Chris Voth, well, now I'm the third left side. So, and that's not the coach or, or the general manager being greedy or dishonest with me. It just means they had an option to sign you and obviously they're going to do that. So uh, I'm curious with the the club model, the way it works in pro volleyball, is the coach the one giving you this information? Or are you networking with other players or does your agent have a feel? Like when you say this club's going to give me more playing time versus this club, I'm going to have to work my way up the depth chart. Like, how do you honestly come across that information when you're approaching a, a club to sign these deals? Are you meeting with the coach beforehand or how are you finding all this intel? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Uh, I would say that the, the professional volleyball business operates a lot in the shadows. And so you have to take a lot of what's told to you under a very like skeptical lens because there's a lot of the, the time it's not going to be true. So for example, if you're talking with the team and they said, then they say something like, Oh, we just need a few days to get uh, your contract in order. And then we'll, we'll send it over to you. They're probably sending that same contract to a bunch of other people first. And then if they decline it, then you'll get, you know, the leftovers. <laughs> Um, or they're trying to sign a player they're negotiating with someone. And so they want to see how much money they have left over. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, kind of shady business that goes on. So anytime someone tells me anything, um, I'm always very skeptical. Uh, and I learned that even if you have a signed contract, that's not good enough. Um, that's not an indication that you're going to go play for the team. For me, it was always, when I finally celebrated was when I got the plane ticket, when they sent me the plane info and uh, with a reference number and I could go online and confirm that, yes, I did have a ticket to go play for that team. That's when I knew it was serious. Um, until that point, I you know, wouldn't get my hopes up or if I did, then I'd just get let down, uh, which I guess is a bit of a roller coaster ride itself. Um, but it's, it's not having those expectations and just, yeah, understanding that it's it's kind of a, a crazy world and a shady business and that things can happen. Um, they can change their mind. They can withdraw offers. You know, everything is possible. They can send you home after a week or two. Um, so now the, the FIVB has better rules to protect players where they can take them to an FIVB court. Um, I don't know what that process looks like, but I've been told that it's it's improving. But I still I don't really trust anyone over there. Even when I tell people kind of my my plans, they always are skeptical as well. Um, and so like this year, for example, heading back to the Netherlands, uh, I talked with some people and they're like, oh, like, is that is that going to work? Like, can you trust these people? But this is a different case because I was there for four seasons now. So I know the, the club and I know the coach. Um, and so I, I trust them a lot. Uh, but that isn't the case with other clubs. So whether you're talking to a coach or the general manager, or even sometimes to your agent, um, you have to be very uh, careful and cognizant of, of the situation and, and not get your hopes up too early. Yeah, for sure. Well said. And I am curious, I, in my mind, this would never be the main thing, but it's got to help a little bit, right? Where you mentioned uh, TJ and Jay, you've been on clubs with. I think I was reading before the show, you've been on a club team with Jordan Orr, who's a Canadian, and you mentioned Andre Brown. So 
does that help having a, a Canadian guy on the team or does it help with the, even on your club sometimes just having another English speaker? Like what is the lifestyle sometimes when you go to these European clubs uh, just about like the off court stuff? Cause obviously you're going to probably have a practice and a lift and be in game mode, but there's a lot of downtime. So is it really helpful to have a Canadian guy or maybe some Americans or other strong English speakers just to make you more comfortable and feel at home with some of these clubs? Oh my goodness. It is life changing. Um, if you can get on a team with another Canadian, that is the ideal situation. Um, not only do you have kind of a similar cultural background, so you can uh, trust each other when situations come up and you can um, share with people your, your feelings about things. Uh, I think that's huge. Then also on court where a certain team might have a system that doesn't really make sense. Uh, so at least you're, you don't feel um, like super incompetent because everyone else knows the system, but you're, you have no idea. Um, so at least you kind of have that person there to, to share that experience with. Um, so that's huge. I would say that that would be probably the number one thing, at least when you first start out, that if you can do, that would be pretty awesome. Um, I mean, with that being said, it's also a pretty cool experience to go to these teams and know nobody. And you get to reestablish yourself as a player, as a person, and and kind of start over. Um, but that takes, I think, a lot of confidence. And uh, I think that's a, a reason why a lot of people only play one year because their experiences aren't that great. And um, there's a lot of isolation and a lot of time to reflect. Uh, on yourself and and so that can be pretty tough um, but I know that the people who go overseas and do have that that Canadian is huge if you have no one who speaks English then that is a very tough situation and so that's where you know having someone who's American or you know English as an additional language uh, is is really important when I was in Czech Republic I had only one non-Czech teammate and uh, I don't think he really liked me to be honest. He, we were rooming together for a few days until he got his own place. And I, I don't know if that was because of me or just because he just needed his own place. But yeah, so that was kind of a strange time for me where I really didn't hang out with anyone. Um, luckily there was a, an American on the basketball team that was part of the same gym and club that that i was on and so i became pretty good friends with this basketball player but you know like even that he had his girlfriend then come visit and then i was on my own again so there's a lot of time there to uh you know get lost in your own thought and um, it can be a pretty dangerous rabbit hole but um because that was already my fourth year of playing overseas i was a bit more comfortable with being on my own and um wanted to explore and so I bought a car and just went out and explored Europe as much as I could. Uh, so that was a, a pretty fun time too. Nice. Nice. And, and one club I did want to talk about just again, through learning through the show, uh, Felipe Himana Parada has mentioned, and so did Steve Delaney when they were in Finland, like their club actually reached out and mentioned like, are they okay with like the time zone change and, and being in darkness? So 
one, what city were you in? Did they get like normal like sun cycles or did you get into darkness at one point and then i'm also curious obviously you contributed to this because there's been a bunch of canadians like i think jeremy davies played for your club uh was casey shouting there for a bit uh daniel grant like it seems every year they have a canadian so somebody's got to be keeping this pipeline of canadians around but i am curious in your year in finland what was your city like what's the travel like what's the the hourly changes like like uh, it's a pretty unique place to play right yeah, so that I was in Rovaniemi, uh, which is the furthest north club in Finland. Oh gosh, uh, we were right on the Arctic Circle, and um, so the you brought up a lot of a lot of uh, trigger words for me there. I'm just kidding, but um, <laughs> so one of them would be the amount of Canadians that played afterwards. So I, I had a really good relationship with the coach uh, there. He was actually our coach got fired you know, a few weeks after I arrived just because things weren't going well for the club for a couple of years. And so they, they, the assistant coach became the head coach and him and I were, uh, were really close. And so we talked a lot and, um, really saw the game the same way. And so I was able to get a lot of Canadians on that team afterwards. You mentioned a bunch of them, um, but he's no longer coaching there now. But that was, you know, uh, it's a, it's really cool to be able to help out athletes that way, the same way that I was helped to, you know, get their foot in the door overseas and kind of allow them to get into that realm. And uh, once you're through the door, it's it's a lot easier to navigate and you can network and, and find your own way after that. But, um, yeah, so I was, I was really happy to get a bunch of Winnipeggers there as well. What's funny about that is they did talk to me about the weather. And that was one of the things that my agent, Steve Welsh, um, talked to them about was that I uh, would be used to their cold winters because it was, it would, you know, be the same as, as in Winnipeg. Um, what I wasn't prepared for was the difference in the sun. So in Winnipeg, we've, I think with Calgary, maybe we've been the sunniest city in Canada. And so although it's freezing, like minus 50, there's still a bright sun for most of the day. In Finland, though, uh, above the Arctic Circle, surrounded by mountains, we, we only had like a couple minutes of sunlight in the darkest of the, the days where it would, the sun would just peek over the mountain and then dip back down. Um, so it was very dark, and I didn't realize the impact that that was having on you know, my psyche until reflecting afterwards and to see how crazy I went. Our team wasn't doing great. And so I, I really put my heart and soul into playing. And, uh, and not only did that take a lot out of me, but with the, you know, the interactions with some of the teammates and uh, the sun, like it was, it was just bonkers. So I had relationship troubles that year. I had, I told my parents that I didn't want them to come visit because you know, I, was, I only got there in November and we were probably going to be done quite early because our team had never uh, been successful in the last couple of years. So I thought, wow, just like, I don't want them to see me like this. But, you know, in hindsight, it goes, wow, like that was pretty dumb. Like, why not just have people come visit and uh, and kind of help me out a little bit? And then the fact that we were the most northern team. Uh, we also had the longest road trip. So normally teams, when they would come play us, they would fly, but our team was pretty cheap, which I was actually thankful for because I, you know, did okay salary wise. 
and they were desperate at that time because they had injuries and they just needed someone. So I, I kind of slid into the right situation, but we would travel on a bus. That was a nightmare where um, anyone who's played on the team has definitely traveled in this bus, but uh, there were two settings for temperature on the bus, either like Arctic freezing or just burning sauna. Um, because it was either that the heaters were on or off. And if they were off, it was obviously freezing. And if they were on, they were right beside the beds that were on the bus. Uh, and, and so you would wake up just drenched and so hot. And then the bus driver, he, the heaters were only beside the beds in the back of the bus. And so the bus driver would get cold and flip on the heaters and then just roast us. So before we get to some of our games, like we lost like five pounds of water weight. Um, so that wasn't good. But eventually we started going to games a day early and settling in a hotel and, you know, fully preparing for games. So we started doing a lot better. And so that was that was good. But there were a lot of long road trips. I think our longest road trip was 14 hours because we'd have to stop for the bus driver for him to just like take naps on the side of the road. Uh, we stopped a few times to let people, you know, take a walk or to get food. I did actually get salmonella poisoning on one of these road trips. So that, that made for a pretty long road trip and end of the season. Uh, cause I was like knocked out for a couple of weeks, but yeah, before I got there, they actually traveled. They did that 14 hour, uh, bus ride to Helsinki and then played immediately after getting off the bus and then drove back afterwards. So uh, they didn't even go for a night there, which blows my mind. But funny enough, when I asked, well, how did that that trip go? They didn't remember. <laughs> it was like such a, a short period that they didn't even remember how the game went. So I think that was my answer on how it went, that they just completely forgot about it. Now, hopefully they had it fixed when you were playing, but I remember Jeremy Davies told us the story that the wipers didn't actually work on the bus. The driver had a string and he would have his hand out the window and he was manually working the wipers. Was that the same bus? And hopefully they had it fixed when you were there. Guaranteed the same bus. (laughs) Um, for, For me, the time that it broke is the clutch didn't work. And so he was driving the bus with no clutch. So I don't know how he was changing gears or what he was doing. Um, but we didn't have that. And then I think one time that the, something was happening with the brakes. So he had to, uh, like shift down in order to brake. Um, cause I think maybe he only had like an e-brake or something. I don't know exactly how it was, how he was doing it. Uh, but our bus driver was hilarious. Um, didn't speak any English, so I couldn't really talk to him, but he was a funny guy. So I would not, if you, if it was a yes or no, if the windshield wiper story is true, guaranteed, because that's just kind of how things went with this team. <laughs> well, a little happier times in the Netherlands. I remember just speaking to you real quickly at Canada games and we were talking about your experience in the Netherlands and you probably don't even remember this, just a really casual conversation, but you mentioned you would buy a house there in a second. Like you would move there. You were enjoying it so much. So I'm curious with your experience in the Netherlands, what's made that country so enjoyable for you that the, if you had to leave home and not live in Canada anymore, that the Netherlands would be the spot for you? Well, I still actually have about 50 tabs in my, in my internet browser of houses. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm still on the prowl. 
but obviously I'd need something there long-term, like a long-term contract before I'd pull the trigger on something like that. Uh, but I think it's, it's a whole bunch of things. So the people are super friendly. Um, you know, when you, when you travel to these Eastern European countries, I think Russia is actually a really good example where I've been to Russia three times now and people don't smile at you. And that seems like such a, a small thing, but you just don't really feel at home or welcomed because no one's smiling at you. And Finland was very similar where the Finnish people are very stoic. Um, I learned actually afterwards that in Finland that it wasn't that they weren't friendly. It was just that's how they are. <laughs> they just don't smile at you. Um, but then once you get to know them a little bit, they are a lot friendlier. But in the Netherlands, everyone's uh, happy and helping and joking um, and very welcoming, very inclusive. They were the first country to legalize same-sex marriage, so it wasn't even you know an issue there when I went. Um, they actually asked me, like, why was this such a story? Like, we realized you had some media attention for this, but that's not even like a thing here. You wouldn't even get media attention for that. So, you know, that was kind of cool. And the the Dutch culture is amazing. So they bike everywhere, you know, 365 days a year. And, and it's more efficient and faster sometimes to take a bike somewhere than it is to get in a car. Uh, so that's pretty fun. I really love the the food that they have there. It's like so much fresher and I always feel so much healthier when I'm there compared to in Canada. I think a lot of the food in Canada gets imported long distances. And so it, you know, it doesn't have time to ripen or something while it's still in the ground or on the tree. And I don't know, I, I just feel like it, it tastes better there um, than it does here. And surprising enough, a lot of probably the number one thing that Dutch people complain about would be the weather. But the weather is something that I actually like there. I, you know, it's it's similar to a, a Vancouver where it rains during the winter, and if it does snow, then everything shuts down until the snow's gone. And I really don't like snow. I don't like being cold, but I don't mind being wet. And so, you know, when it's raining there, I actually find it peaceful, and I I enjoy biking and walking in the rain. So I don't mind that part. Obviously, it's a little annoying if you're going somewhere and you show up soaked. Uh, but just like in Winnipeg, where if it's cold, you just put on another layer. Same thing in Netherlands. I just will put on waterproof clothing. And then when I arrive, I'm good, you know. So I think there's there's a whole bunch of things that kind of go into it. It's not one thing in particular, but it's just the, the Dutch culture. I actually found out recently that my ancestors are from, you know, the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany area. And so maybe that's, I just kind of feel a connection to those people and to that area. Um, maybe that's it. I'm not sure, but it's definitely a special place. And you can see by my social medias, all I do is post pictures of, of the Netherlands and I have a bike tour of Groningen and um, yeah, I just love it. So I realize that I lose followers every time I post something, but you know, that that's, <laughs> I, I, the haters gonna hate. I'm just gonna keep posting it because that's that's what I love. So, 
Awesome, man. And then just to, to finish up with what you're up to now. So obviously you're working with uh, Bravo and, and I'm a big fan of Matt Harris and, and you guys got a good coaching staff, but man, what, what a squad. Like I almost want to, don't want to name people because I'm going to leave somebody out, but just for our listeners, like you get to go to practice every day and work with like Elgard, both Elsers. I think Pearson Shinko's on the team, Jackson Howe, uh, Xander's on that team, Colton, uh, Justin Louie, Finn's there. Like it just seemed Brandon Copper's like, uh, I think Byron's on that team. I, now I'm starting to leave people out because I've only missed a few, but man, what uh, uh, do you wake up in a good mood every day and just go to the gym and work with these coaches and these players? Like what's that experience been like with, uh, with the national team so far? Yeah, I, I really love it. Like I love the opportunity to be here and it's, you know, always been special for me to, to play for Canada and now to coach for Canada. It's such an unbelievable experience. Um, and I do, I do wake up every day excited to go to practice and excited to, to try and help these guys in any way I can, if, whether that's, um, technically, or if, you know, they're looking for some answers about things that happen overseas, how to do certain things or see something in a different way, or, you know, my opinion on something that they want to try doing differently. You know, I I think that's kind of how it's changed a little bit since my time is, um, these athletes are able to watch a lot of video. And that's something that my generation didn't really get to do. Um, I talked about TJ, but, you know, I think he was the only one I knew that was able to watch games. But these guys are able to watch every pro league. They get to watch all of VNL, uh, all the teams competing. And so they'll see things that certain countries or certain players are doing and trying to adapt that into their game. Uh, and so I get to learn from them too. And so it's really cool. Um, kind of the learning environment that we set up. We do actually have Larry McKay here instead of Bravo. Um, oh, thank you. I Bravo didn't know that. Some, thank you. Had some difficulties, uh, I think, with his visa. I'm not 100% sure on what that was. But uh, working with Larry McKay has been such an unbelievable experience, too. I got to play for him for a bunch of summers. I went to two FISU games with him because um, it used to be our B team that went to, to FISU. And so... Um, I got to play, you know, a bunch with him and now to see it from the other side and see kind of how he approaches it and how he, uh, what feedback he gives and how he structures it. And, you know, just to see everything and to see him work is, is just awesome. Um, I had just the utmost respect for him before and I didn't even know it was possible, but that's obviously like exponentially more now just seeing, you know, all the, the time and effort that he puts into his coaching and, and everything. Great. And, and I'm sure it's really tempting for him or even Glenn, who kind of has a just a fingerprint over or the whole program to kind of be tempted with a, a guy's experiences you to be kind of the player's coach. And like you said, share experience, share like what it's like playing overseas, playing for the national team. But uh, I think just learning and speaking to you throughout this interview, like obviously you're probably a big guy on culture and autonomy and little things like that. Right. So switching from a player to a coach. Where do you find that your attention or your passion is, is taking you really quickly? Obviously, you mentioned you're a technical guy, but are you getting any chance to be with the team when it comes to things like that with the, the overall culture or any autonomy you're giving to the guys or anything like that? Uh, well, for sure. Like when we structure practice, we can, um, you know, allow for time where, where athletes have more autonomy and are able to be more creative and experiment. And I think that's how you grow as a player and how you can change the sport. Um, we do have a, a really awesome, uh, boy, I, I don't know his, uh, his official title, maybe sports psychologist or mental coach, uh, but Kyle Paquette, he's been working with the A team for, um, two Olympics now. And 
um, is just awesome. So he's been in our gym a couple times and kind of directing stuff on culture and, you know, like behavior and stuff like that. And, and just learning so much from him. Um, but I'm like, I'm at the point where I'm just trying to be a sponge and just soak up everything and, and try and help where I can. Uh, and so, yeah, like you said, I, I really enjoy the technical aspect. I think that's something that, um, kind of gets overlooked a lot, but at the same time, uh, there's, you know, infinite ways to do all of the skills. So trying to figure out and adapt on what's the best way of doing it is also a really cool challenge. And, you know, things were different when I first started playing to, to middle of my career, to the end of my career, and they're just going to keep changing. So I think that uh, it's pretty cool to see that that evolution and try and uh, keep up to date with it, but, uh, you know, also still be able to direct the athletes in a way to set them up for the success when they go overseas. Yeah, that's so great to hear that everything you're up to now and even with your your club in the Netherlands learning data volley, which to me was was a fun experience with Lionel, but man, it's like learning another language and I feel like it's hard to watch the game when you're doing that because there's so much to track, but really exciting to hear about your playing career and, and everything you're doing as a coach. Uh, I, I kind of took us into overtime, so I want to thank you for giving us all the time that you have, but uh, just to close it out, I was hoping you could share kind of a, a funny or unique experience because I think the volleyball community is great and there's got to be something uh, funny that happened along the way for you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and I have, we're, we're actually on a break right now, so I have all day. So don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> when I, when I was kind of reflecting back, I, there were two kind of stories that stuck out to me. Um, one of them was, was walking in Arctic pride with my Finnish team in Rovaniemi. Uh, they had just legalized same sex marriage. And so, um, our entire team walked in the, in the Arctic pride, making us the first professional volleyball team to walk in a pride parade in the world. Um, so that was pretty cool. And, uh, it, it actually had a bit more of a March feel than a parade. Um, but that was, that was a fun experience. And to be able to share that with our team, uh, was just unbelievable. And I actually, they, they gave me the mic at the end of the, the parade and they're like, okay, like your turn to give a speech. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> this is weird. Like I'm not here as like a political person. I just am a dude walking with his team in a parade. Um, so I don't know like the Finnish culture. I don't know anything, but okay, here I am. I guess I'll say a few words. And then the other kind of quick story that I had is we were uh, driving in Belgium with our, our Dutch team. So I was in a car with a couple foreigners, but one of them was Jay Blankenau. And then the other one was um, our other setter who was actually Dutch, but he was, uh, he was in the car with us. And so we were driving in, in Belgium going to uh, a preseason game and we were just following our coach. And this was in a time when if you had cell phone data, it didn't work if you weren't in your country. So none of us had reception because it only worked if we were in the Netherlands and we were in Belgium. And so we were just following our coach. No problem. It's not a huge city. But we got stopped at a red light. Um, there was some traffic, but it was okay. So we could still kind of see him. But then a, a horse and carriage came around and pulled in front of us, shielding our view of the coach. And we couldn't see where he went. And so there was like a fork in the road and we just had to make a decision. Okay, where where do we go? Uh, and we went one way and I guess we zigged and he zagged. And we ended up like 
you know, at the perimeter, or I don't know what you would call it, like ring road being like, okay, well, obviously this is not where the gym is. Um, so we just found any gym. Well, first we went to a gas station and we're like, okay, we're just looking for this team. Do you know like what gym they're in and where that gym is? And they're, they're like, oh, gym? Okay, yeah, we'll go this way. And so we had our Dutch teammate, because um, in, in Belgium, I guess they speak a whole bunch of different languages from Dutch to Flemish to French. Um, so we had our Dutch setter go and try and figure out where the gym was. So we went to a gym, ended up being the wrong gym. And then we showed up to our preseason uh, game like an hour late. Um, and we had both setters, so it's not like they could have played, but that was kind of a crazy <laughs> experience. Um, just the fact that a horse and carriage like cut us off and then <laughs> ended up like totally throwing our, our, our game and our day off. So, um, that was something that Jay and I always laugh about when we kind of reminisce about that year. <laughs> That's great. Even when you're playing volleyball at a professional level, something funny or odd is going to happen along the way that you guys actually delayed a game because you had both setters in your car and you, you delayed a professional match because of this. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. I mean, that also happened at uh, the university level one year with Garth where we read the schedule wrong and then showed up late to a, a preseason tournament game against U of A. And then we actually almost missed our flight um, that same tournament. So it was... I don't know if the time zones in his eye calendar were off or something, but um, yeah, I mean, that happens all the time, I guess. So just uh, <laughs> something you got to be prepared for. <laughs> Definitely. Well, man, I'm glad I could catch you on a little bit off time from the national team because you guys are prepping for a competition. Obviously, if the the world uh, obviously gets back to normal and we can play international tournaments, but I believe you guys have a Pan Am event if everything goes right with COVID, right? Uh, honestly, there's so many factors going into all of the potential events that, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure on what's going to happen and what's not, but, um, we're, you know, pushing hard every day and, uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool what, um, you know, we've been able to, to work on so far. And I just look forward to the next couple weeks to months or whatever it looks like, uh, working with this like unbelievable team. So yeah, it's really cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for everything you gave today. Uh, I, like I said, I know we went into overtime, but I feel like there's a lot more we could have touched on. So thanks for all that you shared with us and obviously an easy guy to root for. So thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks so much for having me here. Um, I always enjoy these podcasts. So um, I'm, I'm honored to be here and I uh, you know look forward to the day when we can do it again. <laughs>